As always, it's good to be back with you again and uh, continuing our studies in the book of Esther. And uh, this evening we'll finish up uh, the book of Esther. But uh, just to let you know, I know that uh, everybody is wondering when and chopping at the bit to um, you know, get back to church. And um, I just keep praying next week I will, next week or the following week, I will um, have an announcement as to what, uh, what we're going to do here. So please keep that up in prayer for you know, God's guidance and uh, for the wisdom of God. So tonight's study is from destruction to deliverance, Esther 9 and 10. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we come in Jesus' name. And we ask, God, that you'd lead us and you'd guide us into your truth, God. That, Father, you'd lead us into your will, God. And that, Lord, we would desire to do your will, God. And that, follow, that Lord, we would follow your word in everything that we do, Father. And God, that we would seek always your word, your wisdom, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we pray now that, uh, Lord, the Spirit would lead us into this truth of Esther. And that, God, uh, um, that you would take over and you'd have your way with us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I said Esther chapter 9. The Jews didn't give a call to go to war against the Gentiles. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, called to go to war against the Jews. The time had come now for the attack on the Jews by the Gentiles, which originally was, you know, set in order by Haman. Uh, and now it was the day uh, for that to take place, for the annihilation of God's people. But Mordecai's revised decree changed all of that. It changed the day of destruction to the day of deliverance. The Jews had been given the okay to defend themselves against the attack of their enemies. And they were given nine months to get ready to prepare for this day. The people in the empire who hated the Jews, they were hoping that this would be an easy battle and a total victory. But things did not turn out the way that they had hoped. And uh, that's usually the way it is when you want to come against God or against God's people. So let's look at chapter 9 now, verses 1 through 16. And the scriptures say, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them, because the fear of them fell upon all the people. And all of the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, uh, work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all of their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also Parshandatha, uh, Dalphin, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, uh, Parmashta, Erasai, Eridai, and Vajezatha, the ten sons of 
Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed but did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? And it shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. And then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. As a result of the Jews' victory, the Gentiles feared the Jews. The Jewish men were organized. They were armed and they were ready to meet anybody who would attack them, who would attack their families and would try to take what belonged to them. But the Lord had given them a greater weapon than, than the swords. It says that, they, that God gave the fear of the Jews to fall upon the Gentiles. We also read in 2 Chronicles fourteen twelve through 14 from the New Living Translation, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians in the presence of Asa and the army of Judah, and the enemy fled. Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they were unable to rally. They were destroyed by the Lord and his army, and the army of Judah carried off a vast amount of plunder. While they were at Gerar, they attacked all the towns in that area, and the fear of the Lord came upon the people there. Also in Second Chronicles 17.10, And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. So this was the fear of God that God had put in the hearts of the Gentiles here in chapter 9 to keep them from fighting God's people. And you see many times in the Old Testament that the fear of God fell on those that saw the mighty power of God, uh, His works, and in the works of the people. Now, when Jacob had traveled from Shechem to Bethel, we read in Genesis 35, 5, the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. It was this same fear that went before Israel as they entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 2.25, it says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Also Deuteronomy 11.25. Rahab told the two Jewish spies that the fear of Israel had paralyzed the nations of Canaan, and that fear is what helped Israel to get the victory. Now, We see this great fear of God and the people of God that fell on the people around them, their enemies. One of the problems with people today, as Paul said in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's pretty evident in the time that we're living in. Psalm 14, we read, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1. Now, just because the fool 
who says in his heart there is no God, is basically saying he's an atheist. That doesn't mean in the slightest bit that there is no God. You know, it's like a pilot that might be flying in the fog. And of course, he might, you know, he might be warned, hey, you know, it's foggy out. You know, aren't you afraid to be flying out there? And aren't you afraid you might hit something? And, and he might just, he might ar- stubborn, stubbornly argue, hey, don't worry. There's no mountain peaks ahead. You know, as their plane is flying through this fog at, at several, mi- several miles a minute. And then all of a sudden, without warning, boom, the plane crashes into a mountain. And all of a sudden, there's nothing but destruction and death. But you see, to say there is no God, I mean, that's a lot worse than saying there there is no mountain. Now, even though it just might be true that there is no mountain, it doesn't matter that, you know, no matter what anybody says, there is a God. There is God, not just a God, but there is God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous God. The God of sure judgment. God rightly says that a man who says there is no God is stupid. That's really what he's saying in Proverbs, uh, in Psalm 14.1. The word fool there means an arrogant bore, dense morally, intellectually, and spiritually, according to Strong's Concordance. If a man doesn't want to believe, okay, there's, that, that there's a son, well, he has every right to say that. He has every right to believe what he wants. All right? Uh, that there's no son. He has every right to say that. But the rest of us are going to know for sure that that guy is blind. All right. And he's not willing to admit where, you know, the, where, where he sees the, the uh, or feels the warmth of the sun. He, you know, he, he, you know he, he's a, he won't admit where it's coming from. He's not willing to listen to what others tell him who have eyes to see and who can attest to the honesty of the facts. There's a son. Now, for a man to, to, who talks like this, no matter what he thinks, we learn to look at him with a lot of pity. Poor guy, man. You know, he, he, the evidence is all around him, and he just, he's not willing to admit it. But the men that Paul were talk, was talking about in Romans 3.18, who didn't have the fear of God among them, are in a lot worse condition. They didn't deny that there was a God. All right. They just went their way without paying any attention to the fact that there is God. And the acknowledgement that he exists. They wouldn't acknowledge that. They might say they believe that there's a God. But you see, they've chosen to ignore him. And you know, here's the sad thing. Like a lot of people, they don't even take the time or the trouble to, to, to search it out. These people don't even take the time and trouble to deny that he exists. They just react and reject him, uh, the, the responsibility to search him out to see if it's true. And there's a lot worse than saying there is no God. An atheist tries to argue that God doesn't exist. But again, those that Paul were talking about in Romans 3.18, they just ignored God as if he didn't exist. You know, like Pharaoh in Exodus 5 too. you know, if the people were saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now, why is it? We have to ask ourselves what we hopefully we know the fear of the Lord and we see the power of the Lord that gives us that that fear, that reverence. It's not a, a, a cowardly fear. It's a reverence. 
But why is it that people today have no fear of God before their eyes? Oh, we know that we live in in a dark and sinful world. But we are here. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He says we are the light of men. We're reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. So could it be that the world hasn't seen anything or even a little bit in God's people that would make them want to fear the Lord? Acts 4.13 says this, And now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, notice it says, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Notice, they saw something in Peter and John. It was a boldness. It was a courage. They recognized they had been with Jesus. Do people, when when they talk to us, when they see us, spend time with us, do they recognize that, that, that we've been with Jesus? Do they believe that we've been with Jesus? Talk to Jesus, know Jesus. In Acts 8, 6, it says, The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, listen, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. Once again, the people saw the miracles that Philip did. Acts 16, 27 through 34. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, notice, and seeing the prison doors open, Supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called, uh, but Paul called with a loud voice and he said, do yourself no harm for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. But again, they saw the prison doors opened. They saw the power of God. They saw that God was, was working and moving. You know, do people see this kind of devotion to God in you and me? So that if an outsider came to church, came into the church and, and visited one of our services, would they want the same God that, that, we're, that we're serving? Would they truly say, man, God is, God is among all of these people. You see, the fear of God protects those who fear God. And we see that with the Jews here who believe in his promises. Because the Jews believe Mordecai's revised decree, you know, they revised Haman's decree, they had new courage. They weren't afraid of the enemy anymore, and their courage put fear into the hearts of the enemy. We're also reading uh, Philippians 1.28, New Living Translation. Paul said, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them, notice, that they are going to be destroyed, but, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. You know, we're not to be intimidated by this world or the people in this world or the things going on in this world. Before King Jehoshaphat went into battle, God's message to him was this in Second Chronicles 20, 20. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And that's still wise counsel this evening. But there was another side to this fear that helped the Jews get their victory. And that was the people's fear of Mordecai. 
the satraps, the governors, and all of those that were, that were doing the king's work throughout the empire, they were in such awe of Mordecai that they even helped the Jews defend themselves against the Persians. God had given Mordecai his high position. God had given him his, his, his great reputation. And Mordecai used his authority to do the will of God. He didn't use the power and the authority he had to do his own will or, to, or for his own gain and benefit. In Joshua 4.14, it says this, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. God exalts. Mordecai was prime minister in a government where, he was, where his word was law. But Christians today don't, don't live their faith in such a way many times that the power of God is seen in their lives. So the enemy, why should he, why should he be afraid of them? The enemy doesn't think twice about ta- attacking God or his people. And, and here's the sad thing. Instead of, of this godless world being afraid of the church, the church is afraid of this godless world. And many times they imitate the world. And they imitate the world so much so that we can't tell the difference between the two. The church today is no longer the New Testament witness and power like it was in the book of Acts or like it is in the book of Acts. But instead, this is what Jesus says about the church in Revelation 3, 17, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the description of prisoners of war. Instead of being the conquerors that Paul says we are, we're the prisoners. So no wonder the world has no fear of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Whenever the church has tried to use the weapons of this world, the ways of this world to fight its battles, and in my opinion, I see a lot of that going on right now. The church is using the weapons of the world to try to, to, to move the church. We are to follow no man. We are not to follow their ways. We are to wait upon God. We're to trust God for everything that we're going through. Romans 8.28 says, For all things, all things, even this pandemic, now, if you can't you know, say that this is of God or he's allowed it, then you can't, you can't agree to it. Romans 8, 20, all things work together for good. How this is going to work for my good, I don't know. But I am seeing some light in it. I am seeing things through it. I am learning things from it. But, but God is in complete control. But So again, we need to trust God. We need to look to God, though we don't know what he's doing, but we're not to follow any man or his ways. We're not to jump on a bandwagon and, and do things like the world is doing. We are different from the world. The world is to recognize that we're different. Too many times they say we're just like the world. We're just like them. And, you know, we act just like them. We are not to war according to the flesh. We are to war. We are to put on the whole armor of God, which means depending upon prayer, depending upon the word of God. The Christian soldier, the Christian warrior, can march forward in the battle with courage and faith, and expect victory if we do. If we're warring with the full armor of God, 
By destroying those who attacked them, the Jews here were only doing to the enemy what King Saul refused to do to the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now here in verses 5 through 15, we're given the report from Shushan. And in verses 16 through 17, we have more news there about what happened in the other parts of the empire. Now, during the two days of fighting, the Jews killed 800 enemies in Shushan alone, according to verse 6 and 15. Even Haman's 10 sons came against the Jews and all 10 were killed. Their bodies were hanged on Haman's gallows as a warning to the enemy. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, the 10 names are arranged on the page to look like a gallows. Now, on the Feast of Purim, the synagogue reader would read these 10 names all in one breath because, they, because all of Haman's sons died together. Then seeing the bodies on Haman's gallows would for sure discourage the Persians from attacking the Jews and would result in saving many lives. Now, some see Esther's request in verses 12 through 13 as a vengeful spirit, as a vengeful, resentful spirit on her part. But it really wasn't. Haman's strongest support was in the capital city where where the people had bowed down to Haman. and, And they benefited from his favors. Because it would be easy for them to get together and plan their strategy, Esther wanted to be sure that none of them would be around to cause any more trouble. Now, she might have gotten some reports. She might have been told, hey, you know what? Haman's supporters, they're planning to attack you guys tomorrow, the next day. Which would cause her to ask the king for his permission for the Jews to continue the right to defend themselves. Now, the Jews in other parts of the empire, it says in verse 16, kill 75,000 of the enemy in one day. The Jews were so outnumbered. But their victory was definitely, again, a powerful witness to their faith and their courage. And you see, when God is on our side, no matter how much we're outnumbered, we're the majority. We're the bigger group. So three times we read that the Jews didn't lay a hand on the spoils or the plunder, verse 10, 15, and 16. They did, you know, they, they, they won the, the, the conflict, but they didn't go after all the goodies. They didn't go after the stuff that was left behind. That wasn't what they wanted. Taking the spoil from their enemy was why King Saul lost his kingdom. And the Jews didn't make uh, Saul's mistake. They were not in it for the wealth. All the Jews wanted to do was to protect themselves and defend their right to live safely in the Persian Empire. And the Jews killed only those who first attacked them. The Jews weren't the aggressors. The enemies were. Let's look at verses 17 through 32 now. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, notice, as well as on the 14th day. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. 
And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had, ca- and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then verse 29, The Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahai, Abahai with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 120 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim and their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. In verses 17 through 32, now we see the effects of the deliverance that it had on the people. And it's neat because our story now ends with a bright picture where there was once a dark, gloomy cloud that was hanging over the heads of God's people. It's now, that that cloud is gone. It's like, you know, when storm clouds are blown away on a windy day. We see what this deliverance brought to the people. It brought rest to them. They found rest in their deliverance in verses 17 through 18. All the Jews in the empire, except those in Shushan, rested on the 14th of Adar. The Jews in Shushan, after their two days of battle, rested on the 15th of Adar. Then they all rested together. They had destroyed. They had broken down the power of their enemies. And they they destroyed that power so much so that they had rest, not just from the past fear, but also from worrying about their future. I mean, how comforting is God's rest, especially after the stress of a long, threatened danger to the soldier when the battle is fought and won, to the nation when the enemies who tried to destroy them and rob them of their power. God's rest is awesome. It's amazing. That's the kind of the rest the soul gets when it finds victory over sin and death in Jesus Christ. It's the gift that Jesus gives to those who follow him. And when all of the battles are over, 
Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, There remains a rest for the people of God. We see that deliverance brought the people joy. And, and it's a natural thing to have a joy inside. That, and it should be such a joy that people see it outwardly. They should see that we are such a joyous people. And you know what? The greater the work of God, the greater that joy should flow from ourselves outwardly. This great deliverance of the Jews filled them with such great joy that their hearts were just overflowing with gladness. And the same same thing happens to the man or the woman, whoever, you know, who receives Jesus Christ and and his salvation. There's a joy of salvation. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 8 said, a joy inexpressible and full of glory. John the Baptist's joy was fulfilled when he heard the bridegroom's voice in John 3, 29. And Jesus explained what his goal was in teaching his disciples the truth. His goal was that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. We should be, I mean, we should be full of the joy of the Lord and it should remain there. Nobody can take that away. A life with God is a life of joy. And it puts away fear and it puts away a guilty conscience. So, you know, that that goes with it and it drives away the gloom and it turns all things into a means of joy. That's that's of God. That's divine. Now, sackcloth, it might be the symbolic clothing of the one who's repented. But we read in the scriptures that shiny white garments are the symbolic clothing of the true believer. Songs of deliverance are all around those that are saved. We see in these last verses here that deliverance brought unity to the people. Common trials and victories have, have, a, have great power in uniting men's hearts together. In their grief and in their joy, the Jews became united. They became one with one another. They became one family. Hearts become one and everybody stood together. And they were drawn into a close oneness with one another. The deliverance added a great feeling of unity, of oneness to one another. It's in these kinds of experiences where petty differences and opinions disappear. The more Christians realize how much they need God and they need his mercy and his grace, the faster they will see, the faster they'll they'll look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The history of the church shows how God... And, and, and think about what we're dealing with right now, today. The history of the church shows how God every so often sends tribulations and triumphs and maybe pandemics just to bring his people closer to himself. And as a result, brings them closer to each other against their common enemies. Deliverance also brought the people kindness. And that's what real joy does. It makes the heart more tender. When you've been blessed, it stirs you up inside. And it makes you want to do good. Grace is giving. And if we truly love Christ with all of our soul, all of our heart, and with all of our strength, we will love all those who Christ loves. And if we have real joy in the Lord, we're going to want to share that joy. We're going to want to give that, that, that joy to others. 
Now, the gladness of God in these people, it, it overflows onto others. And what we see is that gladness of these Jews, uh, the gladness of their deliverance was shown in three ways. First of all, in their feasting together in verse 18, they feasted together. Social gatherings that, that celebrate great events or interests, those are, those are good. Those are a good time for encouraging and, and for building each other up. We also see that the gladness of their deliverance was shown in sending presents to one another. Verses 19 through and 22. They weren't, they weren't satisfied with just words or messages. They exchanged presents. And they did that as a sign of, of, of you know, a, a thankful congratulations and sympathy. Experiencing God's favor should make our hearts generous and it should make them giving. The third thing that we see, how their gladness showed in the deliverance, is in verse 22, giving gifts to the poor. There were a lot of the people who couldn't celebrate in the deliverance with others. They were so poor that they received gifts so that everybody could rejoice together. And Jesus said in 1 John three seventeen, freely you have received, freely give. Then there were memorials recorded. Verse 20, it says there was a written record of what happened. Mordecai says, wrote these things down. So a record of the things that took place was to become the best way and the most lasting document of Israel's deliverance. How? By placing them in the word of God. A yearly festival was to be celebrated in memorial. In verse 21. Esther and Mordecai ordered that the Jews everywhere should celebrate every year the victory over Haman with a three-day feast. Now today, the Feast of Pur or Purim is celebrated in Israel as a testimony to the truth of the story that we see here in the book of Esther. You know, these, these institutions, these memorials, these, these memorial institutions, they have a great value. Like the Lord's Supper that we, you know, that we share in the church, you know, weekly or monthly or however the Lord leads. Reminding us of the Lord's death, his burial and his resurrection. Memorials of the past. And we saw a lot of them set up, you know, in the Old Testament when a great event happened. You know, the, the leaders say, you know, you know, put a pile of rocks here. When we come by this way, we'll, we'll the, you know, we'll know what happened and we can share with the, the witness of others to others what happened or the great things that God done. But memorials of past deliverances and great works of God should keep us thankful as we celebrate them, as we're reminded of them. We should thank God for them. Secondly, they should teach us that we are dependent upon God. It teaches us our dependence on God. And then those memorials, they strengthen our faith in God. We see them, they go, yeah, you know, God did that then and he did this, you know, and, and he'll do it again. His past, his past experiences, you know, give us encouragement for our future experiences that we're going through, that we're going to have. And also, they warn us, those memorials warn us against temptation, the dangers of sin, and they encourage us to live a holy life, a God-fearing life. Jesus said in Luke ten seventeen, to have our names written in heaven is a better memorial than anything we could celebrate here on earth. All right, let's close with chapter 10 now. 
And it says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and uh, uh, his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So we read in chapter 10 here how Mordecai was exalted. Mordecai had a good reputation among the Jews because he was still their friend after he rose to a place of power. And scripture tells us in Psalm 75, 7, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. And you know what? If, you know, we don't depend upon man to exalt us. If we're going to be exalted, we want it to be God. I want the exaltation to come from God and not man. A lot of times when people get promoted or they get in a powerful position, you know, sometimes, not all the time, but they, they get puffed up. They get a big head. They lose direction. They lose, lose purpose. And I have to relate that to a lot of our leaders right now, you know, in the United States of America and how they're dealing with this pandemic. But power, you know, used to help those who are down and to lighten the load of the oppressed is power that's used in the right way. Not to oppress and not to burden people but to remove the burden of the people, to lighten their load. People placed by God in positions of power and have the ability to help them, they shouldn't turn their backs on those who are in need. They must not turn their backs on people who are hurting. And in the book of Esther, we clearly see God at work in people's lives and in the affairs of, the na- of nations. Even when it looks like the world, <clears throat> and we can look around now and might say that, Even when it looks like the world is controlled by evil people, understand. And and I know you hear it over and over, but but it's believing it and taking it. God is still in control, no matter how out of control things might look. And God is protecting those who are his. And even though we might not understand what's happening all around us, we have to trust in God's protection. We have to keep our integrity. And how do we do that? By doing what we know is right. How do we know what is right? The scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us. 2 Timothy 3.16, the, 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 the word of God is profitable for doctrine. You want to know what's right? Read the Bible. You want to know what's wrong? Read the Bible. You want to know how to correct wrong? Read the Bible. You want to know how to keep, uh, keep doing right? Read the Bible. It thoroughly equips us for every good work of God. Again, even though we might not understand what's happening, we have to trust God. We have to do the right thing. Esther, ris- Esther risked her life by going in front of the king. And as a result, she became a, for lack of better words, a superhero, a heroine. You know, she was a hero. Mordecai, who was condemned to death, he rose. God exalted him to become second highest ranking official in the nation, just like Joseph. Same thing, he rose to the second highest position in the nation of Egypt. 
So understand and take it to heart no matter how hopeless our situation may look now, yesterday, in the future. No matter how much we'd like to give up to go ahead of God, to get our hands on what's taking place. We don't have to despair. We don't have to lose hope because God is in control of our world. God is in control of everyone in the world and God is in control of every situation and everything that's going on in the world. Psalm 37, three says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Notice, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. A lot of people now are feeding on fear. They're feeding on the unknown. Yeah, how long, Lord? How long? How long? We don't know. We don't know what the, what the Lord is doing. We don't know what he has in store. But the scriptures tell us to trust in the Lord to do good. In spite of what's taking place. In spite of what's happened, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness, not on fear. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word, God. And Lord, you know, every, every study that we've had since this whole pandemic started, I have seen a message in everyone, Lord, that pertains to it or can pertain to it, Lord. Father, help us to look to your word. Help us to trust in you, Father, in these days. Father, that it is your world. It is your creation, and we are your creatures. And Father, nothing is happening that you're not aware of. Nothing's happening, or no, no one is doing anything that you haven't allowed them to do, God, either by design or range or appointment, Lord. But God, may we keep our eyes on you, not on the world, not on men. May we look up because we know that our redemption is drawing nigh, God. We're no longer looking for the signs of Christ's coming. We are now looking for Christ. So, Lord, we thank you, Father. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.